0: In uh, the letter of 1 John this morning. And I want to start by asking you a question. And the question is if you could ask one thing of the Lord, what would it be? You know, what would be, what is your, your greatest desire? What would you ask him? And you may say, well, Ron, I'm not real sure about using the term desire. You know, is desire compatible with Christianity? I'm not not real sure about how you're using that word. And you know, actually, in some religions, for example, Buddhism, desire is not looked well upon. Uh, In Buddhism, one of the fundamental teachings is that to eliminate suffering, you need to eliminate desire. Because desire leads you to a place where you become unsatisfied, that you don't receive that which you desire. And so... Desiring material possessions or satisfaction or fulfillment or immortality leaves, leaves you wanting and therefore leads you into suffering. And so one of the fundamental teachings of Buddhism is to, in order to eliminate suffering, you must eliminate desire. But what does Christianity teach? You know, what, what do we say about desire? Desire. Well, today, as we walk through this passage of Scripture in 1 John, chapter 2, we're going to seek to answer three questions. We're going to look at uh, what is the origin of desire. We're going to look at what we should not desire. And then we're going to look at what we should desire. And so, to begin with, I want to look at the origin of desire. And it's really, uh, in in this passage, it's, it's assumed in this passage. So I want to read some other passages to help bring this out, but I want to start by reading a section from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. I'm going to read you a little summary, and then I'm going to go into this excerpt of this this letter. Now, this is a very unique novel that Lewis wrote, and so I want to give you a little introduction to it, and then I'll read the section to you. The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis is a Christian classic Screwtape is a seasoned veteran of spiritual warfare who mentors a younger demon named Wormwood. So the the thrust of the book, the perspective of the book is that these demons are talking about how they are to, to lead people astray, lead them away from God. So that's the perspective of the book. And so keep that in mind as I read the selection. And so in one exchange, the elder demon gives this advice to his student. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now, that means God's ground. Remember the perspective. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, meaning God, has produced at times or ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. An ever increasing craving for an ever diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens our fathers, meaning Satan's heart. So the elder demon says, pleasure, desire, this is God's invention. This is not ours. So what we have to do is we have to try to channel that God-given desire into into areas that God has forbidden. And that's how we win over the people. That's the perspective of, of Lewis in this novel. And so Lewis is saying that we have desire built within us. It's... It's an innate thing that we have within our person, and it's in every person. Just ask yourself these questions, or think about these statements. Do you prefer to be happy or sad? We desire happiness over sadness. We desire pleasure over pain. We desire excitement over boredom. We desire love over hate. We have all these desires that we want to see fulfilled in us. And all of these desires are good and they're God-given. And that is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And then in Psalm 1 he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And so you see, this fabric of our being is woven by desire. Desire is in the fabric of who we are. God has placed it there, and desire is actually very good. And as we turn our attention to, to verses 15 through 17 in First John chapter 2, John is, John is going to contrast a desire for the world with a desire for God. And John has contrasted a number of things already in this letter. He's contrasted a view of sin that, you know, I'm, I'm either free of sin, I've never sinned, I don't sin, or sin doesn't matter. He's contrasted that idea with the idea that we need to confess our sin to God. He's contrasted the idea of if you love God, you'll obey God. He's contrasted obedience with disobedience. He's contrasted love for your brother with hate for your brother. And now he's contrasting the desire for the world with the desire for God. And so the first question we want to ask is, where did it come from? Where did desire come from when we see that desire comes from God? The second question is, what should we not desire? And in answer to that question, this is what John writes in verse 15 through 17 in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world, or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, as we begin to unpack this question. What should we not desire? We must deal with one word to begin with. And you may already be thinking about this. When John says, do not love the world. You may think, is this the same John that wrote in his gospel that God so loved the world that gave his only son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, God loves the world, but yet we're not to love the world? How do you reconcile that? Well, I think we all know that words carry a variety of meaning. And what gives the word the specific meaning is the context in which it's used, and how the author is using it. And so, when, when John says, and he records Jesus' words, for God so loved the world, what he means is, God so loved that which He wanted to save or that needed saving. In other words, God so loved sinful mankind that He sent the remedy, Christ, to save them. So he's, he's, the Word is the object of God's saving. Okay? The sinful mankind. Now, the way it's used in 1 John is not the same way. It's referring to that which opposes God. And so John is saying, do not love... That which opposes God. The world, we'll call it. And so in the scripture, this, this idea of the world can carry these different meanings. And In 1 John, John says, Do not love the way of living that opposes God. John Wesley said it like this. Anything that cools my love for Christ is the world. Anything that cools my love for Christ is the is the world. And so John says, do not love the world. But then he gives us more detail about what it looks like to love the world. In other words, he gives us these indicators. You know, if you love the world, maybe this is true of you. Or this is how you can see if you truly love the world. He writes, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh." The desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we have these three indicators to see if we're loving the world. The first two deal with desire, and the last one deals with pride. So the first indicator is the desire of the flesh. And now this word desire can be used in the Scripture to refer to a good thing. Like, I'm desiring a good thing. Um... But most of the time, it means desiring that which opposes God. In other words, it's desiring a way to have our desires fulfilled uh, in a way that, that God does not intend or is not in God's will. And so the first one is the desires of the flesh. And so this specific type of desire highlights that of a physical or sexual nature. It, it's wanting something that we don't have. And wanting it in a way that is not in God's will. Desires of the flesh. The second indicator is the desire of the eyes. Again, this is that desire for something we do not have. And so, see if this has ever been true of you. Have you ever seen someone, you know, drive a certain car or live in a certain home or go on a certain trip, or land a certain job. And as you see that happening, and then you look at your own life, and then you become depressed. (laughs) You just kind of feel pretty bad about it, (laughs) the whole situation. You know, if you've ever felt that, then you perhaps have been slipping into this whole desire of the eyes. This is a form of greed or covetousness. It's this overwhelming, this overwhelming feeling that your life is not what it should be because you don't have that. Whatever that is. We've probably all been there. You know, we, if, if I only had that, my life would be great. Desire the eyes. So the first two indicators deal with Desire. And the last one he says is the pride in possessions, and this is the idea of self-sufficiency, self-sustainment. You know, this idea that I have it all together. You know, I'm a self-made person. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. If everybody could just be more like me, this world would be a better place. You know, if this is you, then. Perhaps you're guilty of loving the world. But what we see is that desire is, in, is, is within every person. But John tells us not to desire the world. Now I want to tell you a story. Summarized by a certain author. He says, most of you will remember the story from Greek mythology of Odysseus, also known as Ulysses. Having kissed his tearful wife, Penelope, goodbye, he set sail from his much-loved home of Ithaca, destined for the city of Troy. The reason for his journey was that Paris, the prince of Troy, had seduced or stolen Helen, the wife of Menelaus, king of Greece. Menelaus, together with his brother, Agamemnon, Ulysses, and a mighty Greek army undertook the daunting task of recapturing Helen and restoring dignity to their beloved Greece. Hiding in the belly of a Trojan horse, Ulysses and his men gained access to the city, slaughtered its inhabitants, and rescued the captive Helen, she whose face face launched a thousand ships. The return voyage to Ithaca, however, would prove far more daunting. Countless were the unwitting sailors who, on passing by their island, succumbed to the outward beauty of the sirens and their seductively irresistible songs. Once lured close to the shore, their boats crashed on the hidden rocks lurking beneath the surface of the sea. The demonic cannibals whose alluring disguise and mesmerizing melodies had drawn them close, wasted little time in savagely consuming their flesh. Ulysses had duly been warned about the sirens and their lethal hypocrisy. Upon reaching their island, he ordered his crew to put wax in their ears, lest they be lured to their ultimate demise. Look neither to the left or the right, he commanded them, and row for your lives. Ulysses had other plans for himself. He instructed his men to strap him to the mast of the ship, leaving his ears unplugged. I want to hear their song said the curious but foolish leader. No matter what I say or do, don't untie me until we are safely at a distance from the island. Ulysses was utterly seduced by the songs of the sirens. Were it not for the ropes that held him fast to the mast, Ulysses would have succumbed to their invitation. Although his hands were restrained, his heart was captivated by their beauty. Inwardly, he said yes, though outwardly the ropes prevented such indulgence. His no was not the fruit of a spontaneous revulsion, but the product of an external shackle. You know, as you picture Ulysses going by that island and he hears this seductive song by these beautiful creatures. He's fastened to the mast and he can't free himself. And as he hears the song, he's seduced. He, his desires within him for beauty and satisfaction and pleasure burst forward. and just, they, He just wants to be released and just dive into the water straight to his destruction. But he's captivated by it. His desires are drawn in by it. But he can't follow through because he's tied to the mass. And I just wonder, would we describe our obedience to God like that? When you think about your Christian life, would you say, I obey God because I have to, or what would people think of me? This person would be disappointed in me, or I would get in big trouble, or this would ruin my career. Do we see our obedience to God as being restrained? I have to restrain my desire. I have to put it down. I have to try to cut it off. And it's like Ulysses on the mask. He's tied up. He's not doing anything wrong, but his heart is wanting to so bad. I think about, do I obey God like that? Where I say... I do it because I have to do it, but I really don't want to do it. I really would rather do all these other things because I think I'll have life if I do all these other things instead of obeying God. Is our our obedience a forced obedience? Or is there another way? Is there another way to live the Christian life? The issue here is we all have desire And some of us have tried to suppress it. We've tried to restrain it with perhaps little victory and maybe a lot of frustration. But here's one thing I want you to see this morning. And that is, you cannot remove desire. You're built with it. You can't remove it. But you must replace it. A desire in order for there to be a change, a desire must be replaced by a greater desire. And so that leads us to our last question. And that is, what should we desire? We shouldn't desire the world, but what should we desire? Verse 17 says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever listen to how one author gives the answer to this question what should we desire he says how do we overcome our enjoyment of sin with our enjoyment of God we minimize our delight in the pleasures of the flesh by maximizing our delight in the pleasures of our creator oh taste and see that the Lord is good so the answer is that we should desire God and the life that He intends for us. It's not that we do away with desire and our, our pursuit of happiness and pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment and love and excitement. All those things can be found, but they're to be found in their place. And that's in God and His ways. So unlike the Buddhists, we believe that suffering is a result of sin. And our desire for happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure and love and excitement can actually be tasted. We can actually taste this now and we can experience the fulfillment of it in its fullness when Christ comes back. As Christians, we believe that we can both taste it now through faith in Christ and we know we will taste it fully when Christ returns and sets up the new new heavens and new earth. It's not that we suppress and restrain and pretend we have no desire. But rather, it's where do we channel it? And John says, Do not love the world. Love God. We're made for Him. There's another story I want to tell you. About a man named Jason. Now, Jason... Like Ulysses, was himself a character of ancient mythology. Again, like Ulysses, he faced the temptation posed by the sonorous tones of the sirens. But his solution was of a different order. Jason brought with him a certain Orpheus, the son of Oeager. Orpheus was a musician of incomparable talent, especially on the lyre and flute. When it came time, Jason declined to plug the ears of his crew. Neither did he strap himself to the mast to restrain his otherwise lustful yearning for whatever pleasures the sirens might sing. Instead, he ordered Orpheus to play his most beautiful, most alluring songs. The sirens didn't stand a chance. Notwithstanding their collective allure, Jason and, his, Jason and his men paid no heed to the sirens. They were not in the least inclined to succumb. So what's the difference? They have the same desires within them that Ulysses had, and yet they didn't plug their ears with wax. They didn't tie themselves to the mask or to the ship. But as they went by this island with these Beautiful creatures, these sirens singing these uh, songs that would just draw anyone in. As they approached the island, they called on a greater musician to play. And it wasn't that they did not have the desire, but their desires were being met by the beautiful music of Orpheus. And so, in comparison to his beautiful music, as they went by the island, there was no temptation they were able to resist the sirens because they had a greater musician on board. And John is telling us that if we are in Christ, we have access to the greater musician. We have the ability to have our desire for destructive pleasure replaced by desire for the one at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Have you experienced this in your life? Have you seen the palate of your desires change? You know, the psalmist beckons us to taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist and John tell us how we can experience this change in our desire. He, the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. John says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So as we feast on God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, our palate changes. It's not that we lose desire, but rather we have our desires ramped up and even fulfilled to a greater degree in Christ. So let me ask you this question again. If there was one thing you could ask of the Lord, what would it be? What is your greatest desire? I want you to notice what what David said. In Psalm 27, 4, he says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Is that your desire this morning? Is that what you want? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you've made us to experience happiness, and love, freedom, excitement, pleasure. But we recognize, Lord, that you want us to experience that in the way that you have intended for us to experience it. Lord, help us to realize that certain pleasures and certain ways that we seek to live our lives and, and give our lives to things will lead us down a path that will be very rocky, that will break up the ship, and we will be consumed. But Lord, help us to take comfort in the fact that You have given us a greater musician in Jesus Christ, that through Him, we can set our affections solely on You and Your ways and experience life the way You meant for it to be lived. Lord, help us each to see that this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to come to the Lord this morning and, ex- and begin experiencing this life that is found in Christ. And as we stand and sing our closing hymn, will you respond? Let us stand, sing.